Welcome to Life Underground. I'm Dan Tebow. There's something really exciting about finding an old thing, especially if it was lost a long time ago. Time itself is an elusive, intangible concept. Quantum physicists will tell you that time is a human construct and that it doesn't really exist. And space is just as mind-numbing as time. They'll argue and theorize whether or not there is a link between the two and what the nature of our experience is all about. Maybe I'm a dreamer, or maybe just too grandiose for my own good. But these are the questions I think about when I'm out in the quiet of old farmlands. And this is exactly what was running through my head. I was about a quarter of a mile from my home. I was standing in a field where an old schoolhouse from the 1800s once stood. I figured this would be a great place to find some really cool relics, maybe a coin or two. Well, I found at least one, an 1818 large scent. But not just any large scent. This one has a lot of history behind it. If I told you it's tied to Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and the Old South Meeting House in Boston, would I get your interest? What if I told you that, even more importantly, this coin represents perhaps the most popular story ever told across the world? Stay with me, and I'll tell you a great tale, because it was in this space and this time that I somehow straddled all of those worlds when I brought the lost to the light. I'm going to start the story in Boston in the year 1876. All of us have heard about the Old North Church, the place where a system of lantern signals would warn of a British invasion in 1775. Nothing against Longfellow, but the truly happening place was another historic building in the city of Boston, the Old South Meeting House. It was built by the Puritans in 1729. It was where Judge Samuel Sewell publicly apologized for participating in the Salem witch trials. It was the place where Benjamin Franklin was baptized, and it was standing room only when guys like John Hancock and Sam Adams, through their elegant oratory, talked trash about things like being forced to house British soldiers, being taxed on their favorite hot beverage, and, oh yeah, having citizens massacred in the street for throwing snowballs at guys in red coats. It was here that they openly talked treason against the King of England. And when the King's troops took over Boston, the place was torn apart. Soldiers burned the pews, they carted in dirt and gravel and turned it into a horse stable and riding school for British generals. Over the years it was partially restored, it narrowly escaped the Great Fire of 1872, but the area there had become crowded, noisy, and transients set up shop much to the dismay of the congregation. So they up and sold the dilapidated building at auction for $1,350, and they built a new church 
in the more desirable Back Bay area. This is the moment when something special happened. For the first time in New England, and pretty much the country, a group of people saw value in preserving a structure solely for its historical value. Today, there's an entire industry around cultural heritage preservation. But back then, places like this just silently decayed and were forgotten. A group of prominent businessmen led the charge, and they called for an assembly of the wealthiest and most influential people in the city. They met in the church itself, and in the gallery sat all the women. And this is where I tell you about the main character of this story. One of those women in the gallery was Mary Tyler, and she was the matron at the McLean Asylum for the Insane in Somerville, Massachusetts. It was one of the first psychiatric hospitals in the country. Back then, they used the word asylum, but it was one of the most progressive institutions at the time for treating mental illness. It was the first psychiatric hospital in the United States to establish basic and clinical laboratories to study the role of biological factors in mental illness. And Mary Tyler was well-suited to her job, caring for and providing comfort to those for which the world was too much to handle. And when you hear about her childhood, you'll understand why. I'll get to that, but first, one very interesting fact about her fundraising efforts to save the old South Meeting House. The new owners had purchased that building for a song at auction, but now they were asking $400,000 to buy the land and structure. It was the men in town that gave the call to action, but it was the women who would answer that call by organizing and staffing countless fundraising appeals and events. And Mary had something special to offer. For many years, she had possessed some old wool stockings she had as a child, and she pulled little pieces from them, tacked them onto cards, wrote inscriptions on them, and signed them. They went like hotcakes. Through this effort alone, she helped raise the equivalent of thousands of dollars in today's money. Pieces of old socks. Wait until you hear where they came from. Mary Tyler's story has been told many times before. I'm willing to bet that it's still told millions of times every day. Let me try to paint a picture of what Mary's life was like in 1806, the year she was born. I know this is a common theme for me, but it's so remarkable, I can't help but say it again. Picture a landscape with almost no trees. At this point in time, wood was scarce, and it was actually imported in from the frontier. Cast iron stoves would soon be invented, and not as a modern marvel, as much as they were a more efficient way to burn fuel than in an open hearth. It was only 31 years since Paul Revere glimpsed the lantern light in the spire of the old North Church. The country extended only to the Mississippi River, the ink was barely dry on the U.S. Constitution, and only the third POTUS ever was in office. And of course, here's the part I like, there were farms everywhere. Mary Tyler was born Mary Elizabeth Sawyer on a farm within a mile from my house. She attended the old Redstone School, which once stood on my road. It's in an open field at this site that I found my coin. And that year, 1818, is particularly important. Just two years before, on a cold March night, she made a connection 
that would define her in the minds of people across the world and help shape her values as a woman, community organizer, and human being. It was the night a couple of baby animals were born in the stable, and in the morning, 10-year-old Mary and her father found one of them abandoned by its mother, totally neglected and all but dead. She pleaded with her father to take it into the house, and he resisted her as long as he could. But her childlike idealism and belief in miracles was a passion that won the argument. Mary was sort of a savant with all the animals on the farm. She would pick clover and train the horses and the cows to come when called for, and they would follow her. She didn't have many playmates. There were very few other children nearby, and her time was spent roaming the field, searching for butterflies and reveling in the natural world and tending to her animals. She was one of those rare individuals who felt an affinity with all living things. That morning, she carefully wrapped the dying creature in old clothing and stayed with it for the entire day. Her mom made catnip tea, and she tried over and over to get the animal to drink it. When the evening came, she slept right next to it and kept constant watch. But in the morning, it took its first sip of milk and later in the day it stood by itself. Mary had succeeded in saving the animal's life through sheer will and vigilant care. As it grew stronger, a bond was created between human and animal. It literally followed her wherever she went. Is this sounding familiar yet? She dressed it up in her clothing, trimmed its forelocks, and gave it baths on a regular basis. In fact, she bathed it so often its fleece was, well, you know. It was in 1818 that the story gets immortalized. This is when the lamb hitched a ride with her and her brother Nate and ended up in a basket under the desk in the schoolhouse. A lot of people don't realize that the poem Mary Had a Little Lamb was based on actual events and with real people. But if you think about that carefully, you can't make this stuff up. A 10-year-old girl convinces her father not to make stew out of a dying lamb, nurses it back to health, becomes its best friend, takes it to school, and then it lives on as one of the most repeated stories in the history of the world. The poem, Mary Had a Little Lamb, had a few notable people support its existence and push it into the mainstream. It was the first thing ever recorded electronically by Thomas Edison in 1877. The uh, first words I spoke in the original phonograph, a little piece of practical poetry. Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. And Henry Ford, fearful of what the Industrial Revolution was doing to small independent artisans, furthered the concept of historical preservation by creating a replica of the old schoolhouse. He purchased Longfellow's Wayside Inn in Sudbury, Massachusetts, and transported the old redstone schoolhouse to that spot where it is still today an interpretive site. Rarely told is how Mary's heart was broken. In any given moment, a beautiful day can become totally tragic. Mary was playing with her lamb as it ran in front of a group of cows feeding at a trough. One of the cows kicked the lamb with a sharp hoof and gored its belly, 
Mary picked it up and held it as it slowly bled to death in her arms. Mary's mom made the woolen stockings from the lamb and gave them to her as a keepsake of her treasured friend and companion. You will miss the humming of the spring And the winter won't mean anything And the summer is a lonesome Throughout her life, Mary saved things. She saved a sick and dying lamb. Through her work as a nurse and caregiver, she saved people. She saved the woolen socks made by her mother, and in effort to save a piece of history, she let them go. They say that those who forget their past are destined to repeat it. Let's also hope that remembering it does the same thing. Sometimes it's not about what gets lost, but what gets saved. This is dedicated to all of the people who believe that time and space are not so elusive, and that they can be captured and shared as a source of inspiration and reflection upon what really matters in this world. The Mary Sawyer Home in our little town is applying for a spot on the National Register of Historic Places. The farm is still owned and managed by descendants of Mary Sawyer. This podcast episode was sparked by Three Match Creations, an inspiring space conceived and developed by another great visionary, Heather Ann Cook. Learn more at threematchcreations.com. What's your spark? Music in the episode is from Pretty Girls Sing Soprano. These beautiful women have preserved many traditional pieces of music with sweetly played instruments and the purest of vocals. Learn more about them and their music. Check them out on their Facebook page, at Pretty Girls Sing Soprano. For more stories on the contributions of women in our culture and history, visit freedomsway.org and check out their heritage stories. The Freedom's Way National Heritage Area is a place where people are inspired by the historical and intellectual traditions that underpin the concepts of freedom, democracy, conservation, and social justice. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. Thanks to many family and friends that have encouraged me to continue on with this series. This is Life Underground. I'm Dan Tebow. May you bring the lost to the light.